Good morning. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the blessed occasion of the gathering of your people. And Father, our desire this day is to worship you, to exalt your Son, to proclaim his name, to declare his grace, to bow before him in humble adoration. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to save us. We pray to you in his name, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1? The Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 1. If you will, look down there to verse 18, and would you please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. The Scriptures say, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture. You might be seated. Well, the key verses for us this morning are verses 22 and 23. And here from the English Standard Version this time. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now you, you probably know that the prophet that the apostle quotes from is Isaiah. And the prophecy that he records is recorded in the book of the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. Please, please turn there. Isaiah chapter 7 and look down there to verse 10. The Bible says, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of Jehovah thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, 
neither will I tempt Jehovah. And he said, Hear you now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, isn't it interesting that the reason that the apostle gives for the virgin birth of our Savior is, quote, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Why, Matthew? Why? That it might be fulfilled that was spoken of the Lord before by the prophet. The virgin birth of our Savior has many implications, but here, here the Apostle Matthew is very concerned that we understand that it happened according to prophecy and that the very birth and miraculous nature of it were a fulfillment of ancient prophetic predictions. Matthew was writing down the good news. Listen, he was writing down the good news for early converts to Christianity. And many of these early saints were converts from Judaism. So all throughout Matthew's gospel, he mentions how the life of Jesus fulfills prophecy. Prophecy that would or should have been known to these Jews about their coming Messiah. And here, in the first words of his gospel, the apostle begins with the birth of our Savior, and he teaches that Jesus was born just as Isaiah had said Messiah would be born. And one of the reasons why he was born this way was because Isaiah had said so. It must be done according to the prophecy. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, imagine that you were a pious Jew and you heard about this and about how the angel had to assure Joseph it's okay to marry Mary because she's not some impure woman. Now, this was wondrous, potentially scandalous. Can't you just imagine the angel of God telling Joseph, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, Joe. But then Matthew points out to these early saints, just unroll your scrolls. Just look, look, look back in your scrolls. Look all the way back to Isaiah. All of this is according to prophecy. Here's Matthew. Well, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. In Matthew's pen, Isaiah seems to be 
as much the historian as he is the prophet of our Savior's birth. But consider, did Isaiah really mean to prophesy the birth of Jesus? Consider this. Consider, because unbelievers will suggest that the birth of our Savior is not the meaning of Isaiah's prophecy. They'll suggest that maybe Isaiah had some other event in view. Maybe something much closer to his own time. Maybe even something much more ordinary than the birth of the Redeemer of Israel. The birth of the Redeemer of the world. Those that say such things think that they find in Matthew one who would seize the words of this old covenant prophecy and turn and twist them to accommodate the words of the account that he's narrating. Well, listen. First, brothers and sisters, it is often, listen, it is often the case that prophets don't understand the ultimate meaning of their words. It's often the case that prophets don't understand the ultimate meaning of their prophecies. That's just why it's miraculous. But consider the conditions that would lead Isaiah to make this prophecy. And you can read about this, all about this in Isaiah, particularly chapter 7. But listen, here's what was going on. It was in the time of the divided kingdom. And Ahaz was the king of Judah. And Judah was being besieged. He was being besieged in the capital by an alliance of Israelis and Syrians being led by their kings, Pekah and Rezin. So Pekah and Rezin are coming against Ahaz. And the Israelis and the Syrians were allied against, against uh, the Assyrian Empire. And they thought that the best thing they could do would be to consolidate their power in Palestine by deposing the reigning family of David from the throne of Jerusalem and setting up a puppet, the son of Tabeel over Judah. And then they thought they could call on him if they needed to in their struggles against the Assyrians. And God sent Isaiah along with his son to encourage Ahaz, the Judean king, to encourage Ahaz to resist firmly and to assure Ahaz that no matter what these kings that were allied against him wanted to do, God would be faithful to his covenant with David. So Isaiah is coming to encourage Ahaz. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, don't be anxious about this. Pekah and Rezin, these kings aren't coming against you. They're like brands that are nearly burned out. Like smoking stumps, their fire is gone. This is verse 4 of chapter 7. And so the message from the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz is, don't be afraid, Ahaz. Trust God. It's going to be all right. There is no divine blessing in the future for these kings that are coming against you. And, listen, 
Listen, King Ahaz is silent. And King Ahaz of Judah is silent because he is suspicious and distrustful of the Lord's prophet. Let's remember about Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not that which was right in the sight of Jehovah, like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom Jehovah had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That's 2 Chronicles 28, verses 1 through 4. Ahaz was not a good guy. So when the prophet Isaiah comes with this encouraging word to Ahaz, he's not bringing the word of the Lord to a devout God-fearer. And when Ahaz hears Isaiah's words, well, he's just like a toad. He just remains quiet. Is he quiet because he doesn't believe the prophet? Well, maybe. Because Isaiah says to him, ask for a sign. Ask for a token. It can be as deep as hell or it can be as high as heaven. Ask. You don't think I mean it? Ask for a sign. This is from Isaiah 7, verse 11. Isaiah tells him, you don't believe this? Ask. Even ask for a miracle. Now, it's certainly implied by the prophet that if Ahaz had asked for a sign for God, then a sign would have been granted. I mean, Isaiah comes up with the idea. Isaiah tells him, ask for it. But Ahaz was a wicked king. He did not trust the Lord. He had allied Judah with the Assyrians, and he thought that with the help of Assyrians, he'd be able to do without the Lord and without the prophet. I'm going to take care of this myself. And I've got these Assyrian boys to help me, and we're going to get business done. I don't need God, and I don't need your prophet. Ahaz did not want to commit himself to the Lord or his prophet by asking for a sign. But here he is, this wicked king, standing before God's holy prophet, and the prophet's telling him, Ask for a sign. And in verse 12, Ahaz says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now that, that would sound pious, except for what we know about Ahaz, and he was not a pious man. But standing there with the prophet of God, he tries to sound like a religious man. Oh, I don't want to test the Lord. But God's prophet had just told him, ask for a sign. He doesn't ask. 
And when Isaiah finally responds, it feels to me like there's some religious and righteous indignation in his reply. And he says, Hear you now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Isaiah says, enough platitudes, enough hypocrisy. You wear out mortal men with your pretense. Are you going to wear out God with this dribble? You refuse to ask for a sign? Well, I'll tell you what. God's going to give you a sign anyway. You see, a sign would be given. But Ahaz had forfeited his right to determine the nature and the character of the sign. Wicked Ahaz, this degenerate descendant of the man after God's own heart, he wants no sign. But God, remembering his promises to David, will not leave the Davidic line without a sign. Ahaz, you won't ask? Well, God will give the sign. And the sign would show that certainly, assuredly, definitely, Without a doubt, the Almighty would be true to his promises to David. And saints, do you see the nature of Isaiah's prophecy? Though David's earthly throne might perish, the promise of God to establish David's throne forever will still be safe. Though it would be fulfilled in a distant age and in an unthought of way. Does that remind you of anything else? Though David's earthly throne might perish, the promise of God to establish David's throne forever will still be safe. Though it will be fulfilled in a distant age and in an unthought of way. Ahaz, the descendant of David, refuses a sign, but a sign will still be given. And the sign is no longer just for Ahaz. The sign goes far, far, far beyond Ahaz. So when the prophet cries out, Behold! In prophetic ignorance, Isaiah gazes across centuries of time at the images that Almighty God brings before his mind. And he prophesies, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. When he makes that prophecy, it was no part of his plan or God's plan to give Ahaz a sign that would assure Ahaz of immediate deliverance? Listen, the the assurance of immediate deliverance had already been given to Ahaz. And historically, the scriptures record that Ahaz was delivered. 
Though his alliance with the Assyrians furthered the corruption of the Hebrew religion, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. 2 Kings 15, verse 5. So Isaiah's prophecy cannot be, listen, it cannot be about the immediate temporal deliverance of Ahaz. Ahaz refused the sign. So God gives a sign much greater than the temporal deliverance of Ahaz. He reaffirms his tender love to David. And he gives a sign to the house of David and to the world. A sign of the coming of the ultimate Redeemer. Now, beloved, listen. You're believers. You are believers. And you believe that the Isaiah prophecy of the virgin birth applies to our Savior. You believe that because God has made you believe it. And because the Holy Apostle has taught us this in the Gospel. But, but don't you see? Don't you see that the prophecy must go beyond that? It must go beyond Ahaz because Ahaz refused the offered sign. So God Himself selected and gave the sign, a sign that magnificently transcended Ahaz and all of his immediate concerns. Look back to Matthew chapter 1. And do you see there in verse 23 that the apostle interprets the Hebrew Emmanuel for us? When our precious Savior hung upon the cross, the beloved physician records that they wrote this superscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And he tells us that it was written in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin. Hebrew was the language of the Jews. Greek was the language of Gentile learning and commerce. And Latin was the language of the empire. And it was a Gentile language as well. When they killed Jesus, the Romans wanted all who could read to know who they were killing. Let's put a sign over him and identify just who this is. And so they proclaimed to the whole world, to Jew and Gentile alike, the death of a king. Hey, 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 we're the Romans, and we just killed the king of the Jews. There he is. Now listen, Gentile believer. Matthew's Jewish readers didn't need the name Emmanuel to be interpreted for them. Do you understand? Matthew's Jewish readers didn't need that help. They had been to synagogue school. And they knew what Emmanuel meant. But you and I, you and I, we Gentiles, we don't know that. We don't know what Emmanuel means. If it hadn't been interpreted for us, we wouldn't have known what it meant. 
And beloved, I believe that St. Matthew the Apostle interpreted this wonderful name of our wonderful Lord for us, for you, and for me, for Gentiles. Matthew is keen to ensure that the Jews understand that Jesus, the Messiah, was born according to prophecy. And he's keen to ensure that we Gentiles understand that this is God with us. I've mentioned to you before this wonderful little devotional book that I was given as a high school graduation present. It's called The Wonderful Names of Our Wonderful Lord. In science, this name, Emmanuel, it's one of the wonderful names of our wonderful Lord. This is a name of Jesus. Now, the ancients place much more significance in the meaning of names than we do today. But beloved, we should thank God that he gives his saints new names. Jesus said, hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Revelation 2, verse 17. Praise God. Praise God for the new names he gives us. He calls us son, daughter, friend, beloved. Many names today have no meaning, but that was not the case in days of old. Names meant something. And as a general rule, Bible names, scriptural names have meanings. Often they contain teaching, and this is most assuredly the case in all the wonderful names of our wonderful Lord. Almighty God himself, listen, Almighty God himself named our Savior. And he ensured that the right name would be given by sending the archangel Gabriel to let Joseph know just what to call him. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. Um, I think you know our English Jesus is a transliteration. That's where the letters are brought from one language, one language's alphabet into the other language's alphabet. It's brought from the Greek New Testament. And we've taken the Greek letters and have replaced them with an English letter. And so we have our Savior's name, Jesus. And Jesus' name in Greek was a Hellenization. It was a bringing into Greek of the Aramaic or Hebrew Yeshua, which was a later version after the exile of the Hebrew Yehoshua 
or Joshua. And what that Hebrew name Joshua means is Savior or Jehovah saves. So friend, when we say Jesus saves, we're saying Savior saves. And he does. And listen, that's what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is for us. He is the salvation of God. He, listen, He is the gospel. Jesus, God's salvation is good news. His very name means Savior. And listen, every name of Jesus teaches us something about Him. All His names signify, indicate, and point out things about Him. When the prophecy says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. His name is called these things because he really is these things. He is the Wonderful Counselor. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Everlasting God. And there are studies and sermons in every one of those names of our wonderful Lord. But listen, this morning, the name before us is this wonderful name, Emmanuel. And according to St. Matthew, this name can be interpreted God with us. This is the name of our Savior. When you study your New Testament... You will not find the apostles calling Jesus by this name when they speak to him. But you will find that they all call him by this name when they teach about him. Paul teaches Timothy that in Jesus, quote, God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Paul teaches the saints at Colossae that in Jesus our Savior, quote, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9. He teaches the saints at Corinth. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. The beloved apostle bears witness to what he saw and he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Jesus, the Apostle affirms, Jesus is God with us. Now, we Christians who swim in the stream of Nicene Christianity, we affirm that our Savior is very God of very God, begotten, not made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. 
I love the imagery that C.S. Lewis uses in Mere Christianity when he views God's coming to us as as our Savior in Jesus. C.S. Lewis views that as a, quote, divine invasion. I, I just love it. And when you think of the fact that Satan is the, quote, God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the archon of the worldly order, Christ's coming to earth in a manger was truly a stealthy invasion. In Mere Christianity, Lewis writes, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war. But it doesn't think that it's a war between independent powers. It thinks it's a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. And Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say in disguise and is calling us all to take power in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening in on the secret wireless from our friends. And this is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hooves and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know. And I'm not particular about the hooves and the horns. But in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. God with us. Emmanuel. God was in Christ. The word was made flesh. Saints, listen, this idea, this knowledge, this truth that Jesus, our Savior, is God with us, this should never cease to amaze and excite us. There's a double truth in Emmanuel, this wonderful name of our wonderful Lord. There's the truth that Jesus is God. And there's the truth that Jesus is God with us. We who affirm the doctrine of the Godhead sing as our doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We believe that the Son of God 
Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity and that He is divine. He is the only man worthy of worship. He is the only man worthy of worship. Because this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, this man is God. We can worship Him. We can pray to Him. We can petition God the Father in this man's name. The deity of Christ, the Godhood of the Son, is a central doctrine of the Christian faith. And we are of those who can say of the man, Christ Jesus, this man, this man was God. And this man, this man is God. And we may not understand all the mysteries of the Holy Trinity, but saints, we can understand that this man is God. With doubting Thomas, we can look at him and say, my Lord and my God. John 20, 28. And there are many things we don't fully understand. But listen, I pointed out to you before, faith is not blindness. There is an understanding of faith. The writer of the Hebrews speaks of this when he reminds us that it is, quote, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. Hebrews 11, 3. And saints, uh, you know this. Just because I can't explain something doesn't mean I can't believe it. I mean, I cannot explain electricity. I can't explain it. But I believe in it. I have faith in it. And when I flip that switch, if the lights don't come on, I say, something's wrong. Well, what were you expecting? I was expecting the lights to come on. Why? I don't know. They always do. I use it every day and it works for me consistently. Listen, I cannot explain the Godhead. But the Bible teaches, and I believe, that Jesus is God. God with us. And he's not a superman. And he's not an angel. The writer to the Hebrews spills a lot of ink in Hebrews chapter 1, arguing that Jesus is not an angel and proving that he's superior to the angels because he's the son of the living God. And he's no superman and he's no angel. He's God. God incarnate. God in human flesh. Beloved, listen. As you celebrate with your family this Christmas, I hope that you'll remember that when that infant Jesus was in the manger at Bethlehem, that little baby was God. When the child Jesus was nursing at Mary's breast, 
toddling around Joseph's feet. That child was God. This is what we believe. Incarnation. Oh, yeah, it offends the Muslims so bad. When the boy Jesus was sitting in the temple at Jerusalem, hearing the doctors and asking them questions, that little boy was God. When the young man Jesus was going about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, that young man was God. And when that beaten, bruised, bloody, and broken man, Jesus, died on a Roman cross, that man was God. Saints, do you remember, do you realize how beautiful, how wonderful is our faith? We believe that our God has died for us. Our God has lived for us. And our God has died for us. Our Savior, our Lord Jesus, He is our God. He is God with us. Did you hear it when we sang those beautiful words moments ago? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with men as man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus is our God. Now, is that glorious? Well, saints, remember this. Jesus, who is our God, is our Emmanuel. He is not only God. He is God with us. Hail, sovereign love that first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, matchless, free, eternal grace. Emmanuel is my hiding place. That fact that Jesus is God with us, it's a truth that brings forth singing. That's why the angelic choir sang, Glory to God in the highest. At the nativity. That's why the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard. And brothers and sisters, listen. Our Savior's name, Emmanuel, it's a name of majesty and grace. He is God. That is majesty. Listen, He is God with us. That is grace. If he were God alone, only that might fill us with dread, even terror, but he is God with us. And that brings great hope. I recently heard this song and it said, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I think that might be right. The evenings are cool now. The night sky above us is changing. And you know that the Bible teaches that God has given 
the stars above for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Genesis 1.14. And a little over 2,000 years ago, there was a great sign in the heavens, a moving star, a sign in the heavens, a sign that God was about to appear. And the sky has changed. It's autumn now. Winter's just four days away. It's almost Christmas time. Are you marveling at the wonder of the Incarnation? Are you teaching your children to wonder at the miracle of the Incarnation? You should. Are you full of wonder at the fact that God Almighty made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men? Philippians 2.7 Back in the book Leviticus, God told his people, I will set my tabernacle among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God. And you shall be my people. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. And what they saw in a figure, in a tent of ordinary badger skins and gold-covered shittim wood, what they saw in a shadow we now see in the light. We see the man, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who came and tabernacled, who came and pitched his tent with us, even among us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death all their lives were subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. He came as a man. He was a man. Subject to like passions as we are. And we may now say, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, but without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Are you wondering at the marvelous mystery of the Incarnation? I hope you are. St. Matthew wrote, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which is being interpreted God with us. Listen, this fallen world wonders at the incarnation, even though it doesn't want to. But there are moments of such glory in this world that if tongues, if the tongues of humanity fail to render praise to the Almighty, Jesus himself tells us the rocks will cry out with praise. In, in our blindness, friend, we can often miss things that are really important for the things that are apparently important. With the incarnation, it's, it's no different. To the eye of most men, what took place in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, it was ordinary enough. There have been a lot of babies born to poor parents in crowded places in less than ideal conditions. As Mick would say, it happens every day. Unless a person really looked closely into the circumstances, this birth was just like millions before and millions after. Not everybody was with the shepherds and heard that angelic host singing the anthem of heaven. Not everybody. And even among Christians, the gravity of this event, the incarnation of God, even among saints, the significance of Emmanuel, God with us, as a decisive moment, as the beginning of a new era in human history, even among Christians, it's often not fully appreciated. For five and a half centuries, Christians still counted the passing years by the names of the Roman consuls or by the era of Diocletian, just like all the pagans around them. It was only in the year 541 that Dionysius Exuvius, Dennis the Small, first arranged the history of humanity around the most important event in human history, the advent, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christendom, or what some would call, quote, the civilized world, recognize this as a prudent way of reckoning time And no attempts to supersede Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, like the attempt that was made in France during the French Revolution, none of them have ever succeeded. And beloved, listen, the reason that we call this year 2023 is because of the birth of our Savior. Real importance is one thing. Apparent importance is something else. And often the events which most move the world are not those that men take notice of. Often events that seem small are seen much later to have had enormous effects. And so it is with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior of humanity. 
When Jesus was born, it seemed much more likely that the palace of Caesar would govern, govern the destinies of men. But the real king, the real king was in a manger in Bethlehem. And from our vantage point in 2023, Anno Domini, we can see that no other birth since the beginning of history has had such important consequences for the human race. And beloved, we who are living two millennia after his advent, we do well to remember that our king came humbly to a manger, that wise men still seek him, and that his name is Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Hosanna to the royal son of David's ancient line. His natures too, his person one, mysterious and divine. The root of David here we find, and offspring is the same. Eternity and time are joined in our Emmanuel's name. Blessed he that comes to wretched men with peaceful news from heaven. Hosannas of the highest strain to Christ the Lord be given. Let mortals ne'er refuse to take the hosannas on their tongues, lest rocks and stones should rise and break their silence into songs. Please stand with me for prayer. Let us pray. Thou God of all grace, Thou hast given me a Savior. Produce in me a faith to live by Him, to make Him all my desire, all my hope, all my glory. May I enter Him as my refuge. Build on Him as my foundation. Walk in Him as my way. Follow Him as my guide. Conform to Him as my example. Receive his instructions as my prophet. Rely on his intercession as my high priest. Obey him as my king. May I never be ashamed of him or his words, but joyfully bear his reproach. Never displease him by unholy or imprudent conduct. Never count it a glory if I take it patiently when buffeted for a fault. Never make the multitude my model. Never delay when thy word invites me to advance. May thy dear son preserve me from this present evil world so that its smiles do not allure me, nor its frowns terrify me, nor its vices defile me, nor its errors delude me. May I feel that I am a stranger and pilgrim here, declaring plainly that I seek a country my title to it becoming daily more clear, my meekness for it more perfect, my foretaste of it more abundant. And whatsoever I do, 
May it be done in the Savior's name. In Jesus' name, amen.